we need each other. We need Harvest Bible Chapel to encourage and strengthen us. It is only through community that God will bring us hope once again. great to see you guys. Thanks so much for joining us, all the campuses. It's awesome to have you guys join us um, as well. I've got, I need, first of all, I need you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, if you want to get a head start regarding where it is we're going. While you're turning there, though, I want to give you just a short, um, I'm giving you two sermons today, okay? Totally forgive me. The first one's shorter than the second. You're like, the second's not going to be short. No, the first one is not here, here's the thing. Um, we as a church are reaching the end of the end of the year, fiscal year, and you know all these different ministries are making requests for money and things like that at the end of the year because a lot of people wait to the end of the year to figure out how much money that they would be willing to give to the church based upon how much they made throughout the year. And so I was thinking about this this last week, and um, I actually wanted to show you guys something that is really, really I think it's really cool, and it's made a huge impact in the way that I think about giving in the church. Um, in the Old Testament, there is, uh, if you came to somebody who's living in the Old Testament, they say, well, how much money should I give to the community of faith? How much should I give to the temple or to the work of the Lord? They would say to you, well, that's easy. It's in the law. It's called a tithe, it's, which means a tenth. So a tenth of your income you should give to the Lord. That was the basic minimum that they, that they said you should give in, the, in, in those days. Um, what I find really interesting is that when you get into the New Testament, um, you don't find that as the answer to the question. I'm not saying that people shouldn't give a tenth of their income. I'm saying that if you ask somebody in the New Testament, say the Apostle Paul, and you said, well, give me some guidance regarding how I should be involved in giving to the work of the Lord, to the, to the ministry. He would, he would put it differently. In fact, he does put it differently in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What he's doing is he's going around to the different churches and he's, he's raising a collection for uh, the church in Jerusalem that had uh, a famine, they had nothing at all. And so he thought it would be really cool if he went around to all these Gentile churches and that they gave some money to serve the Jewish church. Well, you know, what a statement about unity, right, in the body of Christ. So he goes to the different churches and he makes these requests. And of course, the churches end up pledging this certain amount or another amount. Um, when he gets to 
the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, here, here's his argument for them. They'd already made a pledge. And he comes along and he starts by saying, look, um, I just came from Macedonia where they have this really awesome church. You guys wouldn't believe how much money the Macedonians gave. It was absolutely outrageous, right? Out of their poverty, they were giving above and beyond what they could even imagine. Okay, you guys... I wish you had been there at the Macedonian church. I wish you'd been there and seen all the people who came forward and gave this money for this collection, says Paul. And then he flips it and says, so what are you guys in Corinth going to do? <laughs> it's like, you know, guilt by comparison. <laughs> but he, at this moment, has an opportunity to just tell them, look, what you should do is give 10%, because that's what the Old Testament says. But this is not what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. He says, I say this, right? Not as a command. Like, I want you to give money, but I say it not as a command, but to prove thy the earnestness of others, like the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if you ask the Apostle Paul, what is the reason that you should give money to the local church? He would say, well, because of Christmas. Jesus, who dwelled in infinite joy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lacked absolutely nothing. The Bible says that he emptied himself and became a servant. That's what we, every Christmas we celebrate, the emptying of Jesus to become a servant. To be born in human flesh. The intimate joy of triune bliss. He gives up so that he can be born in a barn where a mule could have stepped on him. What Paul says is, okay, if you consider that, you consider that he who was rich became poor. Why? So that by his poverty, you might become rich. If you consider what Jesus has done by leaving behind that, coming here so that you could become wealthy in him for all eternity. How does that motivate you? So instead of saying, look, you need to give 10%, the apostle Paul comes along and says, Don't get, I, what's the gospel worth? What's Christmas worth? That's why he says that God loves a cheerful giver. Because a cheerful giver is somebody who's motivated by the gospel. Like the little Zacchaeus guy who's saying like, oh my goodness, I've received all this grace from Jesus. I give away half of all that I owned. And brother, he owned a lot. So this has changed the way I think about all these, all these things, to be honest with you. It really has. Is Every time I think about giving, I, I think... Uh, it's not a requirement so much as it is a joy that we have to give to the Lord in response to the grace he's given us. And the gospel is worth so much more than the law. If the law said 10%, let your mind run wild. Anyway, I commend that to you. Uh, <clears throat> end sermon one. Right? Start sermon two. Right. Um, so Santa Claus. Um, one of my favorite stories about Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, uh, was actually summarized by a theologian named Preston Sprinkle. He's a great theologian. He's a really sharp dude. He wrote this little, this little 
blog post a few years ago. It's called When Santa Claus Straight Knocked Out Arius. Here's what he said. I'm not sure how it happened, but the modern picture of slightly inebriated jolly old Saint Nick with rosy red cheeks, ear-to-ear smile, and a belly like a bowl full of jelly couldn't be further from the truth of who Saint Nick really was. Saint Nicholas, who lived between 240 and 343 AD, was the Bishop of Myra in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he, and he lived through the brutal Diocletian persecutions of the early 4th century, the Emperor Diocletian. Uh, he came along and he uh, changed the rules so that every Christian who was anywhere needed to die, basically. While many Christians gave in to their torturers and denied Christ, Nicholas held strong to his confession. As a result, he was beaten, exiled, and ultimately thrown in prison where he continued to be tortured all the while, Bishop Nicholas maintained his faith, faith in his crucified Savior and lived to see the day when persecution of Christians was banned at the Edict of Milan in A.D. 313. Now, a decade later, and this is where it gets juicy, Nicholas was one of the bishops who attended the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in A.D. 325. The great moments in the history of church where they had to determine what they believed about who Jesus was. Was he just a man or was he fully God? Emperor Constantine, who was newly converted, presided over the meeting and several leaders were given the floor to expound on their theological views. Most notorious was Arius, who was famous for denying the deity of Christ. He's a really good guy, Jesus. In fact, the highest created being, but he's still created, not fully God. That's what Arius taught. As Arius carried on, old Saint Nick was more aggravated than, than jolly. As he squirmed irritably in his seat, listening to Arius's heresy, Nicholas was committed to the orthodox position that Christ was fully human and fully divine. In fact, Nick spilt a few pints of blood for this conviction. So finally, Nicholas couldn't take it. He got up from his seat, marched to the front where Arius was spouting off, reared back and straight-socked Arius right in the face. True story. He then danced around the floor to Arius shouting, Dang, you just got Kris Kringled, son. No, Okay, well, I'm not sure if that's exactly how Nick celebrated, writes Sprinkle, but the rest is true as far as I can tell. What I find fascinating, he writes, is that our society has replaced Jesus with Santa when all along the original Saint Nick would be horrified at the spineless consumerism of the American Christmas season. Nicholas bled for Jesus. He was tortured for Jesus. And when Jesus' name was being attacked, he got into the ring for Jesus. When we replace the birth of King Jesus with Santa Claus, we bring shame both on the king and his most feisty defender, Saint Nick, a.k.a. Santa Claus, the dude who cold-socked a bishop in the face for theological treason. So you better watch out. <laughs> Don't make the mistake this Christmas of, Ar of Arius and miss the real meaning of the holiday. Saint Nick is making a list and checking it twice. And if your theology's not in order, you better watch your back, because jolly old St. Nick may drop down your chimney and open up the can on you. 
Isn't that great? I mean, it's great, but on the other hand, we're like, oh, you just ruined Santa Claus for me. That's terrible. I think I like Santa Claus with the bowl full of jelly and that poem, you know, out on the rooftops there arose such a clatter. Like, we, we love that picture of Santa Claus. It's, it's warm, and it kind of speaks about peace on earth. I mean, if there's anyone who wants to bring peace on earth, it's Santa, right? Peace on earth. You know, we, we sing about that a lot. That's, if I were to ask anybody in the world these days, what do you really want for Christmas? They would be like, peace on earth. You know, like the beauty queen. I want peace on earth. That's, that's, what, they, that's what they'd say. And we do sing songs about it. There's one, actually, that I listen to every Christmas called The Grown-Up Christmas List. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you with childhood fantasies. Well, I'm not grown up now and still need... Help somehow, I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart, that wars would never start, and time would heal all. I can't hit that note, hearts. And everyone would have a friend, and right would always win. And love would never end. This is, this is my grown-up Christmas list. You can hear it, right? What I really want, Santa, is heaven. I want, I, want, I want peace on earth. We want a better world. The question, of course, everybody wants that. The question, of course, that we all deal with is how do we get there? Politicians promise this. Every single politician that you know says, follow me and I will give you peace on earth. Follow my worldview, follow my approach, follow my policies, and I will give you peace on earth. They're not alone. In fact, um, the Olympics has gotten into that ring and said, well, we think we can provide peace on earth. So this is the Olympic statement. This is their mission statement. The goal of the Olympic movement is to contribute to building, there it is, a peaceful and better world. How? Well, by educating people through sport, practiced in accordance with Olympism and its values. Nothing says peace like uh, yelling at an umpire, right? Like think, I just got you to think for just a minute about the Olympics, the recent Olympics, and think, hmm, yes, peace on earth is exactly what the Olympics brings. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Oh, my goodness. In Canada, they freak out about the Americans winning, and Americans freak out about Canada, and the Russians always seem to be cheating, apparently, according to us, right? I mean, so... Okay, fine, Olympics, fine. If you go to the United Nations and you, and you stand at the, what they call the Isaiah Wall of the United Nations, they say that they can do it. The forming of the United Nations actually was supposed to do this. It's going to bring peace on earth. And so they quote this passage, uh, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So how do we get there? Well, the United Nations is how you get there. I don't know if you guys ever study the United Nations. We're not doing so hot getting there. But this passage right here, this is an interesting passage. You know where that's from? It's from the Bible. It's actually from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. And it just so happens that I want to study that passage. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 um, It promises a better world. The passage, honestly, it promises a better world. The UN's right about that. 
And it describes how that better world will, will come. Um, you might be surprised, or maybe not, that the Olympics and the United Nations are not mentioned in the text. So here's what we want to do in the next few minutes. I want to describe for you the world that Jesus brings. How does Isaiah describe the world that will be? When Jesus comes and they say, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Okay, what does that look like? What will ultimately peace on earth look like? And more importantly, how will it come? How will the promise of Heaven, the new heavens and new earth, how will that come about? Well, there's three ways, I think, that are mentioned here. Here's the first. Um, Peace on earth is going to happen through exclusive worship. Exclusive worship. So let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let's let's look at the passage itself. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that, that Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so he's received a word from the Lord. It's in a picture. Here's the image. It shall come to pass in the latter days. The latter days are um, the time when all things have been finally made right. This is a a technical term in the Old Testament where wherever it shows up, it's basically saying, look, when God finally restores Israel to its rightful place, when God actually brings all of his enemies under his feet, when God does what he promises he's going to do, that's in the latter days. In the New Testament, we call it in the last days. In the latter days. In the new heaven, new earth days. It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of of the Lord, it shall be established as note the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So here's how it used to work if you wanted to, so you have your God and you want to worship your God and you have to figure out where you're gonna get property to build your temple. You could build it down in the valley, but in the valley it's not very close to heaven, right? What's closer to heaven? Well, the hill is. What's closer to heaven than the hill? Well, the mountain is. So if you have a really important deity, you, you, you put your temple at the top of, of the mountains. This is why the temple of God, right, in Jerusalem was on Mount Zion. This is why if you go to any ancient place and you go to a temple, it's, they're lifted up. They're lifted up on, on, the, on the hills. This is called a ziggurat, not a cigarette, a ziggurat. And a ziggurat's just an ancient house of worship. And you can see, this is what it's like all over the ancient Near East. I mean, you just have these mount, massive hills with these temples on top of them. Every hill has a temple on top of it. But the highest hill in the city is always reserved for the, the greatest God. And so when you read this passage, you, you see... Um, the mountain of the house of the Lord, right? The mountain of, this, this is a statement about the temple. It shall be established as the highest one. It shall be lifted above the hill. So in other words, what's gonna happen, says Isaiah, is that the worship of Yahweh will be the greatest worship of any other God. That Yahweh, in the latter days, Yahweh will be seen as the one true almighty God above all other claims 
All the other idols, all the other gods, all the other everything. Yahweh sits above and all the nations, all the nations, they shall flow to it. They're gonna abandon their temples on the smaller hills and notice that Yahweh is much higher and they're gonna leave and they're gonna flow to the temple of God. In other words... World peace will come about because people abandon their gods and flow to Yahweh to worship him alone. Exclusive worship. The abandonment of their own worship in their religion and turning to God. Now listen, um, that sounds weird to people who live in the West today because if I go out the doors of the church and I say to people, you know what, how we're gonna get peace on earth is for you to turn, your, turn to Christianity because it's the only way. People are like, hmm. And here's why. Um, in our society today, there are largely two, among who I call secularists, people who are largely um, uninvolved in religion. They think they're uninvolved in religion at all. They, they would have two basic views. Um, one group of them would say, actually, peace on earth will come when you religious people realize that all your religions are equally true. When you guys realize that all of the paths that you describe lead to the same spot. Tim Keller told this interesting story. He was, uh, in his book, Reason for God, he was on a panel and uh, I know it's, this panel sounds like a joke, okay? An imam, a rabbi, and a pastor are sitting on a panel. But that, that's what it was. They were in front of a bunch of students at a university. And uh, the, the rabbi, the pastor, and the imam came to, came to the conclusion that their, their faith, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all were exclusively true in regards to the others. Meaning, meaning if one of them was right, the others would not be right. So Keller actually, he, he, he describes this. He said, we all agreed on the statement, all of us on the panel, if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right, that Jesus is not God, but, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. You can't just say that Jesus is both teacher, nice guy, not God, and teacher is God, and Jesus is God. Those don't go together, this the law of non-contradiction. So it's one way or the other, is what he said. So they all agreed on this. Yep, that's, that's basically right. But the bottom line was we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. Now, several students were quite disturbed by this. One student insisted that what mattered was to, to believe in God, largely undefined, right? And be a loving person yourself. To insist that one faith has a better grasp on the truth than others was intolerant. And another student looked at us clerics and said in his frustration, look, we will never come to no peace on earth if religious leaders keep on making exclusive claims. The way that you get peace is for all you religious leaders to recognize that your faiths are equally true. 
Got it? I didn't need to read all of that to you. I just needed to show you that. Right? Like that, that's the argument. Come on, everybody, coexist. Co- it doesn't matter what religion you are, whether you're a peace person or you believe in, in different gender issues or Jewish or Christian, it doesn't matter. Don't you guys realize you're kind of all just partially worshiping the same God and the way to world peace is for you religions to recognize that you're not exclusive but completely inclusive. You're, bo- you're all equally true. Nice secularists will do that to religious people. Um, Not so nice secularists will say, no, 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 no. Here's the deal. Peace on earth will come when people who are religious recognize that all their religions are equally false. That I don't care what religion you are, you're wicked. So Christopher Hitchens, the late Chris Hitchens, uh, who was one of the leaders of kind of the new atheist movement. He wrote this in his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Um, You don't really need to read it because that's what it's about, right? It's like the point. He writes, organized religion is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism, tribalism, and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children. I don't care what religion you are, he says, you're wicked. They're all wicked. The solution to peace on earth is to get rid of religion. This is why in our wider society these days, uh, in the public square, they say, don't bring your religious views out here. We will never solve anything if you bring your religious views out here. Because the solution is the absence of religion. John Lennon wrote, sang about it, you Beatles fans, right? So you're older, you're like, oh yeah, there's a song he wrote years and years ago. If you're younger, you've heard this song, I'm sure. It's called Imagine. He said, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us in this no religion, living life in peace world, and the world will be as one. Don't you see that the answer is the absence of religion? So either you gotta hold the viewpoint in our society that all religion is equally true or equally false, But you cannot say that one is truer than the others. And guys, the problem is that that's exactly what Isaiah says. That in the latter days, when peace on earth comes, it's going to come because all the other worship ends and the worship of the one true God is all we do. So... uh, why should we listen to Isaiah instead of Chris Hitchens? Like, well, um, I'll give you a couple of, of reasons, but here's the big one. Um, I think that people like Chris Hitchens or the students in that story, um, 
Their views sound tolerant. Well, Hitchens doesn't so much, but their views often sound tolerant, but are in reality as intolerant as the views they critique. They sound tolerant, but they're actually as intolerant as the views that they critique. Let's take the students, for example. This guy, kid, stands up in, in the room, and he says, here's the problem with you, Rabbi, um, pastor, and imam, that all of you guys don't see it rightly. I see it rightly, which means that you're all relatively the same. Isn't that a claim, though? <laughs> like, I don't have a religious claim, he says. Yes, but that's a religious claim. You're all the same. That's a religious claim. All you're doing is saying that your religious claim is truer than Tim Keller's religious claim. All the while saying, no, it's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm more tolerant. Shut up. That's not true. Uh, you ever heard that statement said, all roads lead to the top of the mountain, right? So God's at the top of the mountain, and all the roads lead to the top of the mountain. And so Christianity is like on the north face, and and, you know, Islam is on the south face, and, you know, Baha'i goes through the middle, or whatever. We all say, oh, our, our road is the only way. And the secular surrounds who, who thinks that all religions are equally true says, no, 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 no. Um, all of them lead that way. But the only way that they could say that is if they've got a massive plane slash helicopter that's hovering over the mountain. And they have a vantage point that says, look, I can see it. So the rest of us don't have a vantage point from, where, from which we can say the others aren't true, but he has a vantage point where he can say we're all untrue. You're claiming the very thing you deny. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. So it's inconsistent, logically very inconsistent. The point is that everybody has an exclusive view. Everyone thinks their view brings peace. So then the question is, um, okay, then why will Christianity bring peace any better than the others? Like, what, what about Christianity is uniquely different than the other religions so that you say that this can bring peace and the others do not? Glad you asked. Listen very closely. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the fundamental Christian, Christian message is different from the messages of other religions. It's a message of grace that leads to humility, not works leading to pride. It's a message of grace leading to humility, not works leading to pride. All right, so we're gonna climb this mountain, get to God. There we are at the bottom. The Buddhist says, well, listen, I'm going to follow the noble eightfold path and I'm going to get to the top of the mountain. Am I doing perfectly all this good stuff that I'm supposed to do? Like the Hindu says, I'm going to have more good karma than I'm going to have bad karma. And eventually I'm going to, along the mountain, end up in, in, into a place of bliss. I'm going to graduate to the place that I am, you know, part of the oneness of God. But it's based upon my work and how well I do stuff, Yeah. The five pillars of Islam. You got to do that stuff. You got to get to the top. And so there they are trudging away. If you're actually able to accomplish it, which the Bible says nobody can, but anyway, if you're actually able to accomplish it and you follow the Noble Eightfold Path, you get to the top of the mountain, you're standing there, what do you say about how you got there? Boom! I did it! You know? Check out my name, you know? 
Selfie. You know, I, I did this. In your face, all you other people. I'm amazing. Pride. Pride. Everyone else who can't do it, you look down on and think, oh, you're not as good as I am. I made it up here and you fell halfway down. Loser. The Christian view is actually you, you try to climb and follow the law of God and then you keep falling down because you put your foot in the wrong spot and you try to climb and you fall and you try to climb and you fall and fire finally you fall. Eventually you're just exhausted laying there face, face on the ground and this Jesus comes along and says, you need a ride? And you're like, uh. And he puts you on his back and he climbs up to the top of the mountain and you stand there supposedly next to the guy of the noble eightfold path and you got there on the back of another, purely by grace. The other guy got it by his works. When you're asked, how did you get here? What do you say? That guy. So how, how, are you standing at the top of the mountain saying something like, check me out, I'm amazing, losers? No, grace breeds humility. Humility breeds peace. Why does Christianity bring peace on earth? Because it's a religion of grace. All the other religions basically say that if you succeed, you're available to be part of God's plan. But Christianity says, if you fail, you're available to be part of God's plan. The entry requirement for Christianity is not, well, I'm pretty good. The entry requirement is, I totally suck. <laughs> like, I'm on the face first. You all, listen, you all meet that requirement. <laughs> but what comes along with it, listen, what comes along with it is not pride. How can you be on your face first? How can you have pride there? You don't have pride. You don't mock other people. You don't treat them in disregard. You don't foster war. Humility leads to, to peace. Right, just because I, I, I like this story and it's a, it, maybe it will bury this deep into your heart because I really want you to hear it. Um, so I, I, I flew back and forth from New Zealand quite a few times when I lived there. And while I was flying back and forth to New Zealand, sometimes the, the flight is horrible. It's 14 hours or whatever, and usually sitting in a like, cramped seat back in those days, totally cramped. For some reason, we always got shoved in the middle of a 747. So you're sitting there, and there's no windows, and you honestly feel like you're so claustrophobic. It's terrible. It's a terrible experience. Well, one day, um, my wife was pregnant with our first child. We went to check in. We were flying back from New Zealand to back to our home on the west coast of the U.S., and and I said to the, to the flight attendant, or the, uh, the gate person, I said, um, well, my wife is pregnant. The doctor says we're supposed to, she's supposed to get up and move. So is it possible for us to have something on the aisle somewhere? It's okay. I mean, we're used at this point to being back in the back with the toilets and stuff. So, okay. They, the, and the lady said, yep. And she filled it out and said, here are two great seats for you. And I was like, okay. And so took them. We went to the plane. We start getting on the plane. And at 747, you get on right in the middle of, of the plane, right? So if, if you're one of the chosen ones, you take a left through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and you walk <laughs> forward, yeah? If you're not one of the chosen ones, right, and, and you're, you have a karmic debt, you go to the right and you head back to the cattle 
where they shove you in to your seat. I've always, like I said, been in the cattle class. And so I, we went in, and just by instinct, we turned right and started walking down the aisle. It got halfway down, and I was like, oh, I forgot to see what number we are. So I looked at the number, and it said 25. And I looked up, and it was 75. And I was like, uh-oh. Um, so I turned around. We start fighting back against the grain. Everybody's irritated, you know. You figure it out ahead of time. And I'm like, sorry, we're usually back by the toilets. But some reason, we're up further. So we start winding through, and my pregnant wife walking through everybody, and we finally go through the curtain. Because the numbers, like the curtain started at 30. And so we go through the curtain, and we walk up to these two seats, empty seats, 25 A and B. My wife said, this is wrong. We need to get a flight attendant. And I said, yep. <laughs> Just sit down. We sat down, sat there for a minute, and she said, Jeff, we're not supposed to be here. Somebody's going to come along. We're going to get in trouble and stuff. I said, just don't do anything. Just sit here. Just sit here for a minute. If they take off with us in these seats, even if it's a problem, they're not going to kick us out, right? So we just sat there still as anything. You know, don't look at us. Don't look at us. <laughs> Flight attendant finally came by, and she said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bucknam, can I get you something to drink? And I was like, Amazing. They were amazing. 14-hour flight. I was up there. They had food out on a cart, and you could climb up and get anything you want. I was the nicest guy to every one of our neighbors. I was like, how you doing? Good to see you. Oh, hey. We were all buddies by the end. There were all sorts of weird things that happened on the flight, right? People were kind of near the toilet, and so it lined up, and there's a little bit of a smell. I didn't care. I'm in stinking uh, business class, and I didn't even deserve to be there. Pure joy. Peace among brothers. <laughs> All right, fast forward a couple years. We've flown back and forth enough now that we've gained um, points in order to pay for, you know, up upgrade. And I said, honey, that business class experience was probably the best flight I've ever had in my life. So we should just use our points, our earned points, and we should, we should uh, get it. And so we did. This time they put us on the 747 on the top part, right up near the pilot, right? So in case something goes wrong, you're the person flying the plane. Like, so I was up there sitting in my seat and it was, a, it was a, we had a baby though. So we had a bassinet and we tried to put the baby in the bassinet, but he just cried all the time. So I was just pick him up and hold him. And then we put him back in the bassinet and we were like, cool, he was asleep, no big deal. Anyway, the flight attendant kept coming by and saying, you need to pick the child up. You need to pick the child up. You need to pick the child up. You know, safety, safety, safety. You have to pick the child up. In 14 hours, you got to pick the child up. You're asleep, and she, you have to pick the child up. You have to pick the child up. And she'd get madder and madder. You have to pick the child up. Finally, she, finally, he was crying, and she said, you need to keep that baby quiet. And I said, no, you need to keep quiet, right? So she goes and gets the pilot, comes back. <laughs> And he's like, what's the problem here? And I said, well, she's a pain in the rear. What's happening? She's like, you have to pick the child up. And I'm losing my mind. And the people around me are like, will you just be quiet? I'm not going to be quiet. How dare you? I earned these seats and I paid for them with my boys. You know, veins coming out. War is happening in that top section between all of us. Okay, so here's my question for you. What's the difference between the first time and the second time? I'm sitting in basically the same seats. 
But one time I'm in pure joy and peace and the other time I'm in acrimony and war. And the answer is, in one of them, I got it by grace and the other one, I got it by works. Grace makes peace. Works make pride. So Christian, you're graced. And that's how peace will come. All nations will abandon war because the gospel strips them of their pride and gives them humility. It's exclusive worship. That was the first point of my sermon. All right? You're so dead. No, I'm kidding. The next ones are shorter. Don't worry. All right, so here we go. Uh, The second, second way. Okay, it's not only through exclusive worship, but that worship takes a form. It, it, it's actually through submission to God's word. So we're getting a little bit more specific about what that worship looks like. Okay, say verse three of Isaiah two, many people shall come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So these are the people who are leaving the other worship. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion, it's the mountain, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall, here it is, beat their swords into plowshares and and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the UN, right? They won't learn war anymore. The, The... You won't have a need for a sword. So you'll take the metal from the sword and you'll turn it from an object of destruction to an object of production. You won't be fighting with everybody else. Instead, you will be farming. Heaven is a farm. And everyone in Aurora said amen, right? (laughs) How... How does this happen, though? Did you see it? Any people say, come, say, come to let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may, here you go, teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How's it happen? Um, well, everyone's gonna submit to the authority of God and his word. Everybody's going to take what God says and say, yep, that's the right thing and we are all gonna submit to it. That's how. That will lead to world peace. Not doing that leads to war. It's always been this way. It has always been this way. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? They have a law. Don't eat from that particular tree. The serpent comes along and says, eh, really, is that really what God says? And will you really die? And Eve's like, well, it is a really nice apple. So she grabs it, she eats it, gives it to her dumb husband who's standing there looking off into the, you know, at the snail. Oh, and eats the thing, Homer Simpson style. And then their eyes are open. Do you notice that? The first thing that they realize is their eyes are open. And they'd recognize that they're naked. Why is that important? Well, the end of chapter two of Genesis, when everything was perfect and wonderful, the final statement that was made at the end of chapter two is that they were naked and unashamed. They had nothing between them. Fully open. No anxiety. 
No fear. Full openness between the two of them. In the garden, God's grace had led to their peace. But then in the fall, their disobedience to God, the first thing that happens after it is that they realize that they got a problem with each other. And that's how it works. Sin is like a massive stone that drops into a pond, a still pond, and then it ripples out. And all the things that we experience in our world are those ripples all over the place. You get, I disobey God, and therefore you and I've got issues in our relationship and the world. I've got issues with my work, and I've got issues here. I've got issues here. The way to get out of it is submission to God's word. The way to get into war is rejecting God's word. Man, you guys know this. You know this is true. All right, so, so just a couple examples here. Um, I want you to imagine your husband or a wife, they go to church, they've been having trouble in their marriage, struggling a lot. They go to church and they hear a sermon. The sermon is basically about Ephesians chapter five. In Ephesians five, it says this, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, I want you to love your wives. Well, how do you love my wife? Well, as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So this husband and wife are sitting there in the church and they say to themselves, huh. The wife says, man, I've been creating all sorts of issues by not actually listening and submitting to my husband in places where it's not a moral issue. I've been a nag. I don't want to do that anymore. Because I'm doing that, it's causing war. I don't want that. I want to submit to the word of God and the submission of the word of God is gonna bring about peace. Meanwhile, the husband's sitting next to her and going, man, if I had to describe the love that I have for my wife, I would not describe it as Christ's love for his church and giving himself up for her. Like, I'm about me. I want what's good for me. I use her to benefit me. So he decides, I'm not gonna do that anymore. They go home. What happens when they go home? And he's loving her as Christ loved the church and she's submitting to him as to the Lord. Peace. What if they don't? Well, they continue in war. All right, um, how about you're, you're a boss at work and you like being boss. You like having everybody call you Mr. Doctor, Sovereign, whatever, okay? There you are, and you're thinking to yourself, I come to church one day, and you hear a sermon about um, Mark chapter 10, verse 42, and it's about the James and John who are like going to Jesus, and they say, hey, uh, we wanna be on your right and left in your kingdom, and Jesus is like, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Well, that word ends up going out to all the disciples, and they're like, wait a minute, you asked that? I wanted that. They're all fighting with each other. So Jesus pulls them aside, and he said to them, look, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but, but it's not so among you. Whoever would be great among you, they, they must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, right? High and lifted up, glory upon glory, member of the triune God. For even the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. So you sit there and you hear this sermon and you think to yourself, now if I were to describe the way that I am leading my employees, I would not describe it as that kind of servant-heartedness, that kind of Jesus leaves behind all of his things to serve and give himself up for his people. Instead, I would say, I kind of lorded over them. So you decide on that given day, hearing the word of the Lord, that you're going to now submit to it. You walk out of the church, and the next day you start putting into practice this kind of like not lording it over them. And the employees start noticing it, and instead of acrimony, they start having peace with you and each other. Because submission to the word of the Lord brings peace, rejection of it brings war. Always. So the question you need to be asking yourself is, right, so if that's going to the way it's going to be in the time to come, why don't I act in that submission to the word of the Lord in the now? I wonder what would happen if I did it in the now. So where is it that you don't want to submit to the Lord and his word? I guarantee, if you look around your life and you see war, I guarantee you that there is a an obedience issue to God at the root of that. So what relationships are you at war? The solution, repent and believe the gospel. Speaking of which, here's the last one. Um, I said that there's, you know, different ways to peace in this passage. So the first one was through... Um, exclusive worship, and then through submission to God's word. And here's the last one, through entering the true temple. This is gonna sound weird, but I'm gonna explain to you what I mean, all right? So here's the last line of this passage. It says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's an invitation. He describes all that's gonna happen in the latter days, and now it's like, come, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And you are like, are like, yeah, I want that peace. I want to come. How do I do that? You ready for something really cool? Right, so uh, you remember how this passage describes that uh, in the latter days, there will be one mountain that sits above all, and the temple of God will be on top of the mountain. And when that mountain is lifted up, and the temple is lifted up, all the nations will be drawn all the nations shall flow to it. In this passage, in fact, it's called the light of the Lord, that, that temple. Right, so let's think for a minute. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in a fight with the Pharisees, and he's, he answered them, and he said, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. They're standing outside of this massive temple on the hill, the house of God, on the mountain. Destroy it, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said, probably laughing, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Bah! But he was speaking about the temple of his body. We, we call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, right? In the Old Testament, God dwelled with his people in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, God dwells with us, with us in a person, Jesus Christ. So he is, calls himself, in fact, the true temple of God. 
John 12, and I, he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the temple of God, the real temple of God, Jesus is now lifted up on top of the mountain. And when he's lifted up on top of this mountain, he will draw all people to himself. They will flow to him. To who? The light of the world? Do you see? Isaiah is basically, what I've been knowing in is saying, come to Jesus. You want to know how to have peace on earth? You cannot have it apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot have it apart from submission to who he is. Laying your life down for him. You cannot have peace in your relationships ultimately. You can't, have, you can't accomplish what's required to climb the peaceful mountain. You need Jesus. So come. So come. Jesus is the real temple on the highest mountain. When he's lifted up, he will draw all the nations to himself. So Isaiah's invitation in verse 5 is an invitation to come to Jesus, the true light of the Lord. So come to the true temple. Come to the Prince of Peace. Come humbly, knowing you're a sinner who needs mercy. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It occurs to me that there's probably lots and lots of you who are like, yeah, yeah, that's what I, that's what I have. So I'm going to toot two words, all right? If you are somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ, then by no, I mean submit to him and his authority and say, I can't climb the mountain myself. I need him. I need him. Uh, you're qualified to receive everything he has for you. By the sheer admission of, have mercy on me, a sinner, you are qualified. Those are the only words that you need to speak, and God will give you eternal life. Pretty good deal this Christmas. If you are a Christian and somebody says, no, that's, that's the way, you do realize that every good thing in your life and every success that you have is not based upon how great you are, it's not based upon how well you keep everything. Every good thing and every grace in your life is based upon the gift of Jesus Christ ultimately. He loved you beyond all love. He traveled a great distance to be with, with you. There is no reason for you ever to leave our church, ever, and walk out and not submit your heart to Jesus on the way out because he is peace and he is joy and he is life. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for my friends and for the opportunity to proclaim your word to them and what a rich blessing it is to see Isaiah 2 fulfilled in your word and ultimately we get to see it. And here we are. We have a hope, Father, of that latter-day eternal peace. Help us, Father, to hope in it this Christmas season. Help us to see it through Jesus in this Christmas season. And ultimately, Father, would you fill our hearts with joy because we know him. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.